Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human pond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And this week, our special guest is Dr. Susan Friedman. Dr. Friedman is well known to many of you listening to this podcast. We've had her on before and always she treats us with just amazing gems in the conversations that we have with her. Susan is a retired psychology professor from Utah State University. And in this podcast, her teaching career was one of the many things that we talked about. Her emphasis in her teaching was always on Behavioral Analysis 101. Her specialty was teaching the basics well. And any of you who have taken her Living and Learning with Animals online course, who have watched her presentations at the Clicker Expo or attended her webinars, her seminars, her conference presentations, read her articles, or listened to her podcast interviews, knows that her expertise in teaching the basics runs very deep. And that's why when Dominique and I had questions about negative reinforcement, we turned to Susan. That was the subject of our last podcast together. I was especially interested in understanding the dynamic that we are all living through with the coronavirus as it relates to negative reinforcement and changes we are having to make in our behavior. We recorded that interview in June, and afterwards, Susan and I had a catch-up call in which we talked about an article she was writing on the hierarchy of least intrusive, most effective intervention strategies. This was an update of an article she wrote in 2008 titled, What's Wrong With This Picture? Effectiveness is Not Enough. In that article, Susan wrote about the humane hierarchy of intervention strategies. Twelve years on, Susan was writing an update, and so naturally, that was the subject of our conversation together. We had one of those phone calls that you plunge into, and only three hours later do you come up for air. It was clear we had to do another podcast together, and Susan very graciously agreed. Mid-July, Susan, Dominique, and I met up via the internet. And as soon as we connected, I hit the record button. I'm always afraid I'll forget and I'll lose some gem in the conversation. I'm always afraid I'll forget and we'll lose just a gem of a conversation. Can you imagine how horrible that would be to have just an amazing exchange between the three of us and then discover afterwards that I never hit the record button. So to present that disaster, I hit the record button as soon as we were all connected. And then we started in with what was supposed to be just a quick catch up, you know, the sort of thing, you know, how are you? How are you doing? How's the coronavirus affected you? You know, things have changed so much since we had talked a month before. Of course, I wanted to ask how things were in Utah, where Susan lives. So we started talking, and 
Of course you know what happened. We were into the gems right away, and it didn't seem right to stop the flow of the conversation, to do an introduction. There was no separating the beginning catch-up from the treasure trove Susan took us to. So take a deep breath. You're about to dive into an amazing conversation. So what is, what is Utah like these days with the virus? Well, there's Utah and then there's my place. You know, we don't go out much and my place is just fabulous. It is yes. extraordinarily beautiful weather every single day. And um, out every window are mountains and horses and cows and very few wow. people. So we're doing great. Um, but Utah went crazy with a COVID spike over the last Ooh. month or so. And it was at least partly due to premature um, people oh, going out without masks. So yeah, I yeah. read today that Walmart is going to now require masks. And um, of course, they have to make the right behavior easier than the wrong behavior. Yes. So they have to provide masks yes. at that door, um, all of which is imminently doable, and especially in Utah where um, citizen contributions are so great. I, I, I've been scratching my head as to why we haven't had masks at every shop door in the first place. But anyway, so it went down yesterday, I think, for the first day. So That's good. Yeah, I'm starting to um, just be more and more aware of what it's like for people who don't have the good fortune I have. And I'm hearing of zoo layoffs of very important longstanding contributors that are quite shocking. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know where we're going with all of this. How about you two? Well, me here, the Quebec has decided that in two weeks, uh, the masks has to be worn in any shops or anywhere, libraries, wherever, enclosed um, buildings. So it's they're not going mm -hmm. to be giving, they say right now, um, fines. But it's, uh -huh. and for now, they're putting the responsibility of forcing clients to wear the masks to the shop owners, um, which mm -hmm. creates a little bit of discomfort because shop owners don't feel like being policemen. But I think the peer pressure will do its work. You know, already here, whenever you go in a store, everybody, I'm in the country, I'm not even in Montreal, and everybody's wearing already a mask. Ever since they've announced that it was coming up in two weeks, People are already mm -hmm. complying. So here they're not, because right. we're looking at the United States and, you know, we, we so, we don't want to have that. Um, and just, right. you know, opening a few bars, there were already a little bit of an increase. And so now they've decided that the mask was going to be uh, mandatory everywhere. Yeah. I think we have the data We do, now, you, you know? know, and that's the thing. I mean, here at least we have government that's looking at the data to make their decision. <laughs> that's the thing, yeah. I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, but two weeks you can get on. You can have an awful lot of... I know, of, some, pe but um, some people say, why two weeks, you know? But, I mean, people have to yeah. get ready for it. And, you know, like I said, it's already having an impact, but... Um, yeah, there's some. I I agree with you. Some people feel that it's not soon enough, 
and the border is being is staying closed between the states and Canada Good. because, again, you know, yeah. we're kind of afraid that, um, you know, Montreal is a very attractive city and there's a lot of people from New York states who come and so. Mm-hmm. You're, you don't need to worry about no, people actually, coming from New York state. No, actually, that's probably the safest state right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> the tables, the tables yeah, have turned. Yeah. <laughs> We're now looking with great suspicion at every, you know, you know, out of state license plate mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. It's like our masks, no. our masks Please going don't to come be uh, mandatory in uh, New York already. Yeah? They are everywhere yeah. in all the shops and everywhere. Oh, yeah. They've been mandatory for a very oh, long time. I didn't know that. This is why our numbers I mean, are you down. You cannot go to your grocery store without having a mask on. No. Oh. No. Now, there are people who put up a fuss, so there are always the people who are... Liberty! Oh, you know, this isn't... Right, 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 right. Which is, you know, there's so many counters to that. It's like, you can't go into certain restaurants unless you're wearing shoes, not flip-flops. You have to wear a shirt when you go into a restaurant. You have to wear clothes when you go into a restaurant. (laughs) So you have to you know. pay. And I think there's also some important value there that it surprises me how rarely I hear someone espousing this value that's been so clear to me all my life. It's such a funny thing. And that's that value of the commons yeah. and how you behave in the commons versus how you behave in your own home. Yep. So that idea yes. that if you're going to wear, ride your motorcycle in our back mountains and you don't want to wear a helmet. That's your choice. But the minute you have the hit those public roads, then you've involved me in your choice. It's no longer about your civil liberty. It's about the commons. So I think we need to talk more and disseminate more about that distinction between, um, you know, personal rights are only relevant in personal conditions. Well, you- and being in stores is not a person. You'd have to have someone who models that at the top, Susan. <laughs> That's what we've had in New York State, which is why we've really turned the numbers around. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's extraordinary what's happened in this state. That we went from, an, I mean, the, the daily death toll was around 800 per day. And it's now down around mm-hmm. five. Yeah. You know, my daughter, who's working and living in New York City, and her husband, Marnie and Tim, are still living here. They've been here since March middle of March. So we're watching those New York City um, numbers closely and listening to how her firm is handling whether or not they need people back to work or they're encouraging people back to work. He's a student at Columbia, same there. And so far, there's no real end in sight. They could be here for who knows how long. It's a good thing I like them. (laughs) I know, because the great fear is that we will have another spike because people will come in from hot spots in the other parts of the country and it, it will reignite. So this whole question of the how you behave in the commons is really a critical one, it seems to me. Yeah. You know, and, and it seems so so obvious that you know there's certain things that all right, suppose down the road, they discover that we were all wrong and that the masks had no effect whatsoever and that that's not why the numbers came down. It's correlation does not make causation and all the rest of that. But right now, it's the best data we have. 
And I, and I think yeah. one of the most compelling pieces of data that we had here in New York was they did a lot of testing to see where are the cases coming from. So as the numbers were coming down, they, the, they went up really fast and then they hit a plateau and they came down really, really, really slowly. Mm-hmm. And so that question was, where are these cases coming from? Who's becoming infected? So they, they did a lot of testing of the essential workers, of the people who were in the, the, the subways, cars, and the buses, and then the healthcare workers. And, and then they tested general public, people who were, were saying that they were staying at home. And what they found was that there was a higher incidence in the people who were staying at home than there were in the healthcare workers. So the healthcare workers who are working all day mm-hmm. in the hospitals. But with protection. But with protection. Mm-hmm. Wow. Had a lower infection rate than people out, you know, hiding in their apartments. That's incredible. Which, I had no idea. Yeah. And I mean, that was, that was, it was a huge surprise. It was, I remember in one of the briefings that Cuomo gave, you, you know, he, he commented several times that, this was not what he was expecting. He was really surprised by that. But it was a very powerful statement that the protection yeah, works. it's encouraging. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's nice to have a mechanism for control, yeah, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're always yes. back to that. Yes. Huh? And so <laughs> Control. <laughs> At least I am. Yes. My whole oh, life long. My God. <laughs> Dominique, so even as a little child. That's so funny. Everything is about that. Yeah. Well, that's impressive. That's good to know. I'll, I'll try and find it on the internet and pass that around. Yeah. Not to mention Sweden, you know, who provided us with the best counterpoint group. Yes. You know, and we see how they're suffering the decision to just let it take its course. Um, yes. Now that's data we didn't have and we have now, so... There are a lot of real-world experiments that that have been going on. Always, yeah. You know, and quite frankly, right now I'm I'm, you know, even though it was very hard in March and April to be in New York State, and at least I went not in the city because the numbers were so frightening. But right now it's like, oh, we have a little bit of a breather because the numbers are so encouraging. Yeah. And there are these clear guidelines that Cuomo just set out for how to reopen the schools, and it's all data-driven. Mm-hmm. You know, this, the infection rate has to be, I think it's at 5% or lower for a 14-day rolling average in order for the schools to open. And when they open, here are the guidelines for what you have to have set up. And if the numbers go over 9%, the schools close. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty clear. Yeah, and then I think, I'm sure they've thought of this, but what what I think about immediately is being very light on their feet, really on the balls of their feet. So if they do all the right drawing of conclusions about how to open, and then they do those and it doesn't work, that they roll it back again. And that's right. It'd be well, that's, great that's... to hear more of that to get people's expectations ready to move where yes. that data ball moves us. Yes, and that's what they've done on the economy. They've done it in uh, four phases, and it was stressed 
over and over again that if at any point, and it's done by region within the state because it's a big state and the infection rate is very different from one region to another. When you get up into the Adirondacks, you might as well be sort of out in the wilds of the Rockies. The population is very low mm -hmm. and the infection rate was basically non-existent. So it's, it's region by region, and they are at, they watch their various parameters that they watch, and if anything goes up, they dial back. So I want to read you something okay. from an article. Okay. Progression sure. along the continuum of intrusiveness and <laughs> wearing masks, and it's, you know, when, when we're forced to wear masks, it is intrusive. So progression along the continuum of intrusiveness should be data-based, not based on convenience, authority, or politics. Who wrote that? Well, Dr. Susan Friedman. <laughs> what a great <laughs> sentence. <laughs> In a oh, new I'm article kidding. called Why Animals Need Trainers Who Adhere to the Least Intrusive Principle, Improving Animal Welfare and Honing Trainer Skills. <laughs> Isn't that a great segue? <laughs> I think it's a good thing I hit the record button because because this sounds as though it we've started like the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it is. Yep, there it is. So it's you know one of the main themes that I hope to hit home in this new version of my thinking on um, a hierarchy and as a as a way, as a tool to ensure the least intrusive principle is that we're not saying, I'm not saying necessarily that we can't move along the hierarchy, but that our rationale for moving should be particular. It should be data-based. And what we see very often out there in the big, wide, wild world is that people use different rationale for using intrusive procedures. And those include, you know, social and political kinds of um, rationale. And my whole career, I've been pushing back on those rationales as the wrong rationale, that it should be based on our knowledge of how behavior works and based on uh, ultimately the data that we see. Exactly right, as we're talking about with COVID behavior. You know, we open up and we close based not on our politics or convenience or, or authority or the urgency of failing economy, but that we do it based on some kind of, of data set. Mm -hmm. In order to do that, we have to... I'm pausing because I'm wondering if we should... Um, Start again? backtrack back no 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 not start again but but just but just backtrack back a little bit to describe the for Susan for you to give a little background on the two articles that uh, sparked this conversation in the first place but then there's a thought that and I don't want to lose it in terms of if we're going to decide that it's data-based We've, there's something that we have to decide, first of all, and that's what is our ethical priority. So is it, uh, in the cases of COVID, is it that keeping people alive and healthy 
is the highest priority, which, which would give you one way of proceeding. Mm-hmm. Is it that an, an active open economy is of higher importance than uh, individual health? You know, though I think the two would be in conflict, but you'd have to go back and look at underlying beliefs in order to say what is the highest priority. But I think we should, before we tackle that question, because I had some questions around that, I think we should go back and, and Susan, for you to fill people in on what it is that we're talking about in terms of... Applying the least intrusive principle to yeah, our, yeah. our animal training profession. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because one of the deep, most deeply embedded standards or, or values in... Uh, behavior analysis, it's not even right to say value um, as science, you know, science components is the idea of context that you can't isolate behavior from its context to be able to understand it well. The two are inextricably linked. And so I've often used that metaphor, Alex, of the Gordian knot, you know, where there is no beginning and no end as your finger traces those lines. And that's how I think behavior analysis distinguishes itself in many ways from, for example, the medical model or other models of pursuing an understanding of behavior is that context and behavior are one unit. And we separate them artificially to gain the information we need to understand how that unit works as a whole. But it is a unit. And so the context in which I set out to write these articles and think through what I wanted to disseminate to practitioners, to people on the front line using our fundamental principles, I think is important. Uh, The context in 2004, when I wrote the first article, was a real preponderance of force and coercion as methods for controlling the behavior of animals in human care. So I came onto the scene of animal training from my work with human learning at a time where the leaders of the day were um, really lay leaders. They didn't have a particular education in learning science, and that might have been okay, uh, but they also really represented our cultural view of control and coercion, the cultural fog, you know, as I've called it, borrowing from Gunnar Myrtle, a Swedish economist from the 40s. So I came onto the scene with parrot companion parrot behavior with absolutely the leadership of the day describing the most unnecessarily intrusive procedures to control behavior rather than to teach behavior. So it's that, you know, pathological model versus that construction, um, constructional model that when your parrot bites you, you throw them to the floor. So they bite you less. And that would be very different than our view of how do we construct the repertoire of stepping onto an offered hand with enthusiasm and voluntarily and so forth. So that was the context in which I came into it. It was also the escalating time of Caesar Milan on National Geographic. Mm. 
And as I walked through the animal training or animal caregiving world, I was really stunned by this use of unnecessary force, this pervading philosophy that our role as caregivers is to stop problem behavior. That is the responsibility of the animals. And in some ways, what what is implied is that that behavior is independent of context, that this bad behavior is just popping out of us. For example, people called parrots that had a really quick, frequent biting repertoire, particularly cockatoos. They called them super males if they had a had that repertoire. Wow. So you can see by the labeling um, that they put the responsibility for that high frequency biting behavior and high intensity biting behavior inside the animal. Yeah, you're right. You know, at that time, there was so little attention to the scientific fact, if you will, that behavior and context is always a single unit and that our best avenue to understanding and changing behavior is by understanding the context that supports that behavior and changing the context. I think at that time, too, one thing that really added to the cultural fog was the word respect and its interpretation. Yes. Because people who did have the the kind of ethics that would promote uh, animal welfare were very often told they were weak leaders, that their animals were not respecting them. And I think that derailed a lot of people for a long time. Yes, I agree. And that's why, I mean, you can kind of trace, and I know, Dominique, I'm, I'm always so honored to work with you in these kinds of topics because I know that you've read my articles from the very beginning. Well, it was life-changing for me. I think probably the article you wrote, Effectiveness is Not Enough, for me, mm-hmm was the most important article ever in my life. It changed everything to know that effectiveness was not enough, that the science legitimated uh, the kinds of ethic, not, not the kinds of ethic, that science showed us that there, it could, we could be effective with positive reinforcement. But you also brought mm-hmm. up the ethics in that article. And for me, it really resonated because... No one was talking about ethics the way you were. And I just felt finally legitimate, you know, in what I wanted for my animals. So this, the importance of this article was very, uh, I mean, it was immense for me. Well, I really, of course, that's really reinforcing. And as I meet people around the planet who say similarly that it was just a missing mm. piece in their understanding of the big mm. picture... That was very much what motivated me to write it, was my observation as I went around the world working with trainers, was that that was a missing piece. So I attempted to try and begin filling that hole that we could address both both at the same time. And now it's, you know, almost 20 years later, 15, 16 years later, you know, it's always a good time to get back in touch with the way the current has moved you down the stream. So by writing the second article, it was an opportunity to say in these long 20 years, 
of working in the animal world in the context, you know, of bringing my learning history, working with special ed kids, and my deep connection to behavior analysis as a science and as a, as a professional, it's a really good time to take stock of what I've learned. Do I think differently now? Is there more to add to the discussion? And I think there is. I think that the basic assertion has stood the test of time well, and that there were nuances now that I've been alerted to, that I knew but didn't prioritize, they hadn't really come to the front of my thinking, or new things that I've learned, concerns and considerations. And I tried to put that in the new article to kind of reflect where we are 20 years later. So we have a much more educated animal community than we had 20 years ago. There's a lot more discussion about welfare and ethics and what does respect look like. You know, I remember standing in front of audiences saying, and I still do, what does respect look like when you tell your clients they have to be respectful? What behaviors are you telling them to do? Because it's just a construct. And without that operational description, people still don't know what we mean. Do they mean that we should throw the bird unceremoniously to the floor? which is in one of the most widely read books about companion parents? Or does respect mean that we should move our hand away when a parrot shows body language that we would call uncomfortable, you know, refusal? So there's a lot going on that's just very, very exciting in it. And it's also exciting to me to take stock, to have, for us to have been a community for 20 years and more, and take that retrospective look and reaffirm what we believed then or were advocating then, and to also expand it to make it more more important. What has expanded? What, what are the new things that you felt you needed to put in this article? My mind wanders a little bit with these big questions. One of the beautiful things about the science of behavior change is that we all know a lot about it on a sort of non-conscious level because we're using these fundamental principles every day or we would fail to get out of bed. You know, We wouldn't even make it to the first, to our hand slapping the alarm, to the first behavior of the morning without making use of those principles. And so that analogy of gravity, I think, is, is a very powerful one. You know, very few of us really understand the deep details of gravity, and yet we make use of it all, all day long. You know, we're relying on it all day long. So when we talk about, you know, what are the new things, for me, most of them rang as, oh, yeah, I knew that. I, I often say when I talk to people who know so much more than I do, um, and they explain something to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I knew that. But I didn't know it on that kind of verbal level. And so many of the things in the article you'll recognize as things that all of us have been talking about. I think what the 20 years or have known on that kind of um, non-conscious level, we've been making use of it all along. But I think that what this allows us to do is to put it into words, put it into onto a paper, 
and then have some good discussions about it. Bringing it to the fore, making it verbally accessible has been, you know, just really, um, really reinforcing for me. So as I um, scroll through the article, one of the new things right from the top, uh, tell me if you noticed any of these things, is how I describe what negative reinforcement is. Ooh, I highlight that. I highlighted it in yellow. I did. Good. I think that's very cool. So that's right yeah. in, the, in the second paragraph. It's taken me, yeah, so many decades. You know, I started learning and working in the field of applied behavior analysis when I was uh, 19 or 20 years old. I'm 66 now. It's been a really long deliciously long time to gain some expertise and to continue to find mentors to add, keep growing that expertise. I realized that in most of the textbooks, these, these definitions are unbelievably circular. And I, uh, every year kept trying to trim and polish and shine. And this is where I've landed as of, uh, 2020. You knew it was coming. I'm going to stop us here. Susan is about to give us her new, updated, beautifully clear definition of negative reinforcement. But you are going to have to wait until next time to hear what it is. Or if you can't wait, you can read her article. It's posted in her website, behaviorworks.org. If you enjoy these discussions of applied behavioral analysis, here's a heads up on an upcoming event. The COVID virus has forced all of us to make many changes. And for me, this has included rescheduling science camp to Labor Day weekend. I don't need to tell you that travel is just not safe right now. So we're going to have to cancel the actual science camp. And instead, we're transforming it into a virtual event. I'm actually really looking forward to our new revised updated version of Science Camp. I think the, the virtual format is going to give us some really neat new features in terms of teaching. We're going to be keeping the group size small, but we do still have a few spots available. So for those of you who missed out on being able to join us at the original Science Camp, you have a second chance now to sign up for it. The theme for this event is errorless learning. Our presenters are known to all of the listeners of this podcast. They are Dr. Jesus Rosales-Ruiz, Mary Hunter, who is our co-presenter from our Listen and Learn course, Michaela Hempen, and myself. We'll also have Anita Schnee joining us for a daily Feldenkrais session. To learn more about Science Camp, visit the events section of my website, theclickercenter.com. We're going to be holding it in central time zone, so that should make it easier for all of you who are on the West Coast to be able to join us. Anyway, thank you for listening. Stay well. And next week, we'll hear Susan's new definition of negative reinforcement.